Our passage this morning is found in a few spots, first in Exodus chapter 19 and then in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Uh, it's also printed in your bulletins to make it a little bit easier between flipping back and forth. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine." And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And now over to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of the ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And verse 14. And if you do not turn aside from any of the words that I command you today, to the right hand or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, this is your word. And so, once again, we find ourselves in a spot where we're asking for your help. I pray that as we come now to hear what you have said, that, Father, you would empower this whole experience by your Holy Spirit. Lord, don't leave us on our own to, to speculate, to think, to muse, to wonder, but I pray that you would help us to see the truth hear in your word, to understand your voice, and that we would be changed into your image through our encounter with, with your glorious word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When is the first time that you heard the story of Moses? Some of you might not even remember because you were so young. You grew up with this story. It's like asking you when's the first time you 
did anything you did in your first year or two of life. I remember the first time, I don't remember the first time I heard the story of Moses. I do remember the first time I watched Charlton Heston play Moses in Cecil DeMille's The Ten Commandments. I also remember a few years after that when I saw The Prince of Egypt in theaters 20 years ago. Most of you, or some of you recently might have seen Christian Bale's version of of Moses. These are just a few examples I give to show that many of us here are really familiar with the, the story of Moses. Many of us are quite familiar with the contours of this story, the big events. And I need to ask, though, as I've asked several times throughout this series, is there a chance that our familiarity with this story, the way that we just kind of expect it, the way we kind of know what's coming, is there a chance that this familiarity actually holds us back from really understanding the story the way that it's meant to be understood? And so what I'm going to suggest to us this morning is what we've been suggesting all along is that the only way to really understand the story of Moses, the only way to really understand the story of the exodus from Egypt, the story of the parting of the Red Sea, the story of the giving of the Ten Commandments, the only way to really understand that is to understand it as a part of the big unfolding story of the Bible, which is what we've been doing in this series from from the beginning of September up until now. So we have to understand how this story fits into and develops this big story if we're going to understand it at all. So that's where we're going to go today and that's what we're going to try and do today. So to begin, we need to really pick up where we left off last week in terms of the big story. So last week we considered God's covenant with Abraham and how that covenant represented a huge turning point in the history of redemption. From that Up until that point, the story had been dominated by God's curse on our sin, on our our rebellion against him. And yet, God promised Abraham that he would bless him and make him a blessing to the other nations. And we saw that was just a massive turning point in, in the history of redemption. God promised to make Abraham into a great nation, give him land for all of his offspring to live And more importantly, we saw how God promised Abraham that through one of his offspring, singular offspring, that blessing would come to all the nations of the world. So there was a lot there last week. And if you weren't, if you weren't with us last week, or even if you were, uh, please go to our website, ebcnipawin.ca. You can listen to the messages. You can read the notes there. Uh, and there's discussion questions and, and so on. So make sure you, you check that out. Now, one of the key passages we read last week was Genesis chapter 15, where God first made his covenant with Abraham and made his formal covenant promises. And what you may have noticed last week as we read from that chapter is that we skipped over a section of verses, and we did that on purpose. We skipped over verses 13 to 16 of Genesis chapter 15. And these verses say this. I'm going to read them for us this morning. This is Genesis 15 and... Verses 13, then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, You shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. 
So that was God's promise to Abraham. So do you notice that? Hundreds of years before Moses was born, hundreds of years before the 10 plagues on Egypt, before the Exodus, this whole thing had been planned out and promised to Abraham. So imagine you're reading through Genesis for the first time. You've got these promises in the back of your head. You know that these things are coming and you're going to be waiting to see how are they going to be fulfilled. So you keep reading through the story and we read that Abraham died and that God confirmed his promise with Isaac and then with his son Jacob. There's a line of promise. God did not extend the promises of Abraham to all of Abraham's children or to all of Isaac's children. The promise goes from Abraham to Isaac and then to Jacob. And God confirms his covenant with Jacob and changes his name to Israel. And we see that Israel has 12 sons and these sons don't get along and they sell one of their brothers into slavery and that son who was sold into slavery, Joseph, ends up in Egypt. So again, imagine you're reading this for the first time and, and, and you're, you're starting to think, okay, this is, there's something going on here. I mean, we knew that they would be, Israel's going to be sojourners, sojourners in a land that's not their own. And so maybe this is part of what's happening there. And sure enough, you, you read how God elevated Joseph into a position of incredible power down there in Egypt. He's, God used Joseph to save Egypt during their seven years of famine. And hopefully there we notice how God is using a royal offspring of Abraham to bring blessing to the nations. Do you see that? And then we'd read that because of the famine, Joseph's 11 brothers, they're forced to immigrate to Egypt and make it their home. And all, all the pieces are falling into place. We see God's promises to, God's promise to Abraham about his offspring sojourning in a, in a foreign land. And yet there's some tension there because everything looks great by the end of Genesis that Joseph's brothers come and move down and they're reconciled and they have a place to live and they have food to eat. But we know that hard times are coming because of God's promise. And sure enough, as the book of Genesis comes to a close and Exodus begins, we read about how there was a new king who arose in Egypt and he didn't know Joseph. And he began to fear the Israelites and he began to afflict them with slavery, just like God had promised Abraham. But we also know the rest of what God promised. We know that he's going to bring them out. And so we're, if we're, again, if we're reading the story for the first time, we're just going to be waiting for how is this going to happen? And so when we get to the end of Exodus chapter 2 and we read that God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. We're excited, but we're not surprised because we've known that this is going to come. God made a promise and, and God keeps his promises. So from this point on this morning, I'm going to assume that most of us are familiar with, with how the story goes. And, and if, if you're not, then grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, I, I, I'm happy to give you one. There's one right on my desk I could give you. And you read Exodus, show you the book of Exodus and read through those chapters. Read the book, don't watch the movie. You know, the, the book is better. And, and oh, the movies, right? Which one? So, so be familiar with the story. But I'm going to assume many of us here are familiar with how the story goes. How God raises up Moses as a leader to come and set his people free. God displays his glory against the Egyptians through 10 plagues. There's, again, so much there we could talk about how each of those 10 plagues, God was specifically demonstrating his supremacy over and against the gods of Egypt. Right? They worshiped the Nile, they worshiped the sun, and God, God crushed each of those gods visibly, showing that Yahweh is the Lord of the earth and, and not the gods of Egypt. And finally, Pharaoh relents. And the people of Israel leave Egypt with great possessions, just like God promised. And then there's the episode at the Red Sea, and finally they arrive at Mount Sinai. 
Now, when I was a child, I used to think that that's where the interesting stuff ended. I mean, I thought that all the cool stuff was over. And now we're into kind of all this boring covenant law stuff. See, for years, I didn't understand that. What happened to Israel when they arrived at Sinai was the goal, was what the whole thing had been about the whole way. See, if you go back and you read through the story of Exodus, the Lord says things to Pharaoh like, let my people go that they might serve me in the wilderness. And I always just kind of thought that was like an alibi, like they're going to serve me in the wilderness. And by the way, cough, cough, they might not come back. You know, I I thought that's kind of what was going on. But no, the, the whole goal, the whole purpose of the Exodus was so that God could bring Israel to himself, that he could enter into covenant with them. Like he says in Exodus chapter six, that he was going to take them to be his people and he was going to become their God. The whole goal was what happened. So we see that when they arrive at Mount Sinai and and through Moses, God speaks the words to them that that Tim just read for us in your bulletin, Exodus chapter 9, where where God says this this is what's happened. And and did you notice those words in verse 4? He says, I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. And see, so, many of, so much of the time when we tell the story of Moses, we tell the story of the Exodus, we focus on the fact that they came out of Egypt. They left Egypt. They went away from Pharaoh. But the real focus of the story is, is not so much on just them leaving Pharaoh. The, the, the whole point is that they came to God. That was the point of them leaving Egypt, was for them to come to God and to be able to serve him. That's what God says in, there in Exodus 19.4. And so kind of the first big point here I want to make this morning is that the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai, that was the whole purpose of the Exodus. That was what the whole thing had been about. So now we're going to go a step further than that, right? So we've already made the point that the, the purpose of the Exodus was the covenant at Sinai. Now we're going to ask the question, what was the purpose of the covenant at Sinai? Why did God want to enter into this covenant relationship with Israel? What's what's going on here? What what is God after? And we see the answer to those questions in verses 5 and 6 of Exodus chapter 19. Where the Lord said, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for the, all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These three phrases in these two verses describe God's goal, God's purpose for entering into covenant with Israel. And so the first phrase is that God is going to make them be his treasured possession among all peoples. This phrase might not be too familiar to us, but in the ancient world, the world of, <clears throat> the world of, of when this story was first told, when this, when this first happened, it was typical for kings, as a king, to have a huge storehouse of treasure somewhere where he, he, would, he would have this, this big, uh, very similar to, to the crown jewels today of the Queen of England. And the, they're in the Tower of London where they kind of put their most valuable treasures all together in one spot. And just think about that. Like think about the Queen of England and her crown jewels. What's, what's the point? Why, why have them and why put them on display for everyone to see? 
Well, what, what's going on there is that she's demonstrating her royalty to the whole world, right? You look at all these amazing things and you say, wow, she must be something. And there's, there's a similar idea going on here that if, if Israel is to be God's treasured possession among all peoples, his special treasured people, and remember what we talked about last week, that God is, is, is putting them on a spot on the planet where at that point in history, they were, at the, they were at the intersection of all the major superpowers. Everyone would have crossed through that stretch of land. It's like they set up a tent at the, at the intersection. God is going to use Israel to show the world what he's like. That, that's part of what's going on here with this phrase, treasured possession. God, Israel is going to be living proof of the glory of God to all the watching nations. There's a second phrase here that says that he's going to make them or they will become a kingdom of priests. Now, this phrase could be taken a couple ways. And, and what I want to show us here, it doesn't just mean that they're going to be priests who live in a kingdom. But rather, this phrase, kingdom of priests, has the idea that they are going to be priests who will also be kings. God is going to make Israel a, a, a nation of priest kings. In 1 Peter 1.9, he quotes this verse and he uses the phrase royal priesthood. That's the idea here. So, so just think about this. As God brings Israel into covenant with himself, that is going to make them royalty. He's going to make them kings and queens. They're going to rule. They're going to exercise authority. And at the same time, they're going to be priests. And what do priests do? Well, they represent God here on earth. They, they, they are the intermediaries, the mediators between God and man. And so they're going to be kings who represent God here on earth. Does that sound familiar to you at all? If you've been tracking with the story, if you've been here from the beginning of the series, have we not met people in this story before who are both kings and priests, royal priests? Well, yeah, who is the first one? Adam, right? Adam, we saw, was a king and a priest whose job was what? To represent God in the world. And then who, who inherited that role? Noah, right? We saw how he had elements of being a king and a priest, and he was God's representative. And last week, we talked about how, how Adam fulfilled, or sorry, how Abraham filled these roles. And we didn't really explain how that happened. We can talk about that later if you have questions, but you read through the story and, and you see Abraham being referred to as royalty and offering sacrifices as a priest and interceding for people like a priest and, and representing God in the world. And now Israel is getting this job. As a whole nation, God is giving, this is probably one of the most important things you need to understand this morning, as a whole nation, God is giving to Israel the mission that originally belonged to Adam, which is to be a royal priest who represents God here on the earth. Now, there's a third and final phrase in, in verse 6, which is that Israel will, will become a holy nation. I don't know if you remember, just over a year ago, it was my first sermon here, actually, we talked about the word holy and how holy doesn't mean not doing bad stuff. Holy means devoted to God. And so Israel is going to be a holy nation. They're going to be a nation, as a whole nation, completely devoted to God, completely devoted to God's purposes for the world. So all of this spells out God's purpose behind making a covenant with Israel. This is why God wants to make this covenant with them. 
Because he's, by doing this, Israel will become a nation of royal priests for the sake of the nations. So there's so much that we can see here. We can see how Israel is inheriting the mission that God gave to Adam and then to Noah. And more specifically here, God is fulfilling his promises to Abraham. God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a mighty nation. And through you, blessing will come to the whole world. And the, the covenant with Israel is putting into action God's promises and God's covenant with Abraham. Now a mighty nation being turned into a kingdom of priests for the sake of the world. So, that, so we've talked so far this morning about the purpose of the Exodus was the covenant. And now we've talked about the purpose of the covenant, which was what we just described. So now let's talk about the covenant itself. The covenant that God was going to make with Israel through Moses. We often call it the Mosaic Covenant. That's why Moses' name is on the screen and part of the, mess- the title of the message this morning. We almost put Israel there, but, but God made this covenant through Moses. So what was, what was this covenant actually like? What did God expect of his people in this covenant? What were their obligations? We've seen that, that in a covenant, each party has certain obligations they need to fulfill. What were, what were Israel's obligations in this covenant? Well, and the answer to that question can really be summed up by the word obedience. We saw that in verse 5 of Exodus 19. If you will indeed obey my voice. And it's the very next chapter where God begins to give his people his instruction, and it begins with the Ten Commandments. Or the Ten Words is actually the, the Hebrew language for it. God gives them the Ten Words, and then he unpacks and applies those Ten Words in detail to, the, to, to every area of their life over the next several chapters of Exodus and then even the next several books of the Bible. And that's one of the things you've probably noticed if you've read all the way through the Bible. And if you haven't, that's something I would so encourage you to do. Get a good study Bible that will kind of guide you along and and do it. And I'd love to recommend one to you. But as you read through Exodus and then into Leviticus and then into Numbers, you see, there's a lot of commands that God gave Israel to obey. There's a lot of instruction there. At the same time, even though there's a lot there, it's actually not hard to sum it all up. Because all of this instruction, what we sometimes call the law, all of this instruction was simply showing Israel at that particular setting in history how to best love God and how to best love each other. That's really what it's all about. And that's why Jesus, when he summed up, was asked to sum up the law or was asked about the most important commandment, he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so see that love for God and love for others. And then he said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So in the covenant, Israel's obligation was to obey God's good and perfect instruction on how to best love God and best love each other. And it's not hard to see that as they did that, they would be showing the world what God is like. They'd be showing the world how to have a, a just society, how to have true, what we sometimes call social justice, how, what that really looks like. 
and how to best care for each other, how to best care for the world. It was all showing them really what, what being a, a, a fully realized human was, was all about. And that would have all come through them obeying God's instruction. Now, if you've read through the book of Exodus and if you've read into Leviticus, you've probably noticed that a major part of God's instruction to Israel has to do with worship. And what this tells us is that if Israel was going to be in a close relationship with God, they needed to know how to approach him and they needed to know how to worship him appropriately. That's why right after the Ten Commandments, the very first thing God gives them instruction about is how to build altars. And just a few chapters later, after a few chapters of of, uh, talking about social laws, about interactions with each other, God begins to give Moses instruction on how to build the tabernacle where they would worship him. And if you turn over to the book of Leviticus, which is the very next book in the Bible, almost the whole book is about how to worship God in the tabernacle. Now, if you're not familiar with it, the tabernacle was just like a really fancy tent. In some ways, it was like a a portable palace for Israel's king, who was God. In, In other ways, it was like a portable temple. And they set it up in the middle of the camp and and God's presence was manifested there. That's where God's glory shone. That's where the God would meet with Moses. That's where God's presence was. It was through the tabernacle that God was really with his people. Now, a few weeks ago, we touched on the fact that, that the, the word that God uses it to describe his presence with his people in the tabernacle was the very same word that he used in Genesis to talk about walking with Adam and Eve in the garden. It's the very same word that's used. We also heard how how God gave the Levites the charge of working and keeping the tabernacle. The exact same two words. And the only time in 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 the first five books of the Bible we see those two words together. The same two words that God gave to Adam when he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So we talked about that in the sermon on Adam, how there's, there's all these connections between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden. And this suggests to us that in the tabernacle, God was bringing his people a step closer to his original intention, which was to dwell with us, to be, have a relationship with us. God was turning back the curse one more step. And just like he walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, so now he comes and he walks with Israel in the tabernacle. God was bringing Israel a step closer to Eden. A step closer, but not all the way. Because in a lot of ways, the tabernacle, it was a reminder of just how far they still were from God. The tabernacle brought God close. It also reminded them of how far away he was. Do you remember when Adam and Eve were cast out of the Garden of Eden? What did God set up to guard its entrance? Cherubim, which these are these mysterious angelic creatures with flaming swords that guarded the entrance to the, to the Garden of Eden. And if you're tracking with the story, you can't miss the connection that the tabernacle's curtains were woven with images of cherubim and overshadowing the Ark of the Covenant in the, in the holy, most holy place in the tabernacle were two golden cherubim. 
Do you see the connection there? And, and, and maybe you've never realized this before, but the, the Israelites were not allowed in the tabernacle. Only the priests could go in the tabernacle. The Israelites didn't even know what it looked like inside. They only saw the outside. Do you see? The cherubim were still keeping them out from the presence of God. And in that holy, the most holy place inside the tabernacle where the cherubim guarded the presence of God, just like Eden, only one person, the high priest, was allowed in only once a year to offer that sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. So the tabernacle brought God's presence close, but, but it really also was just reminding them of how, how far away they still were. They couldn't just stroll into God's presence. If they did, they would die, literally. And it happened time and time again. And this shows up even more clearly when we, if we ask, so, so what kind of worship happened at the tabernacle? How did they worship God? Did they come and do what we did this morning? No, no. Worship at the tabernacle was mostly animal sacrifice. If you read through the book of Leviticus, the next book in the Bible, the first few chapters are just all about the different kinds of sacrifices. Animal sacrifices that people needed to bring at all different times to the tabernacle where these animals would be killed and burnt on the, on the altar. There was a, a video on YouTube I saw a few years ago where some, some Orthodox Jews were, were actually reenacting one of these sacrifices the way it actually would have happened and they videotaped the whole thing. I couldn't watch it. I, I stopped as they were shaving the animal's neck away from where they were going to slit its artery and bleed it out. And, and, and like it, it was extremely graphic. That was daily worship at the tabernacle. And what this was showing them over and over and over again is that God is holy. And if you approach him, you're going to die. And the only way that you won't die is if something else dies for you. Is if something else dies in your place. The only way Israel could stay alive and could stay in relationship with God was by having animals die and take their place time and time and time again. That, was, that imagery was so clear in the Exodus, right? Where God was going to come to judge the gods of Egypt, whom the Israelites had worshipped. And the only way that their firstborn son would not die when the angel of death came was when that lamb died in its place. And the blood on the doorpost said, angel of death, pass over this house because your work here has already been done. Something here has already died. And that pattern continued over and over again. The priests at the tabernacle, they were essentially butchers. There's some people speculate that the reason they burnt incense at the temple was to cover up the smell of all the blood. They, I've heard speculation, the reason they had choirs at the temple was to cover up the sound of these animals dying. They would say that the day where they would have some of their, their uh the, the major sacrifices, that the blood would run all the way down Temple Mount. And all of this was a reminder that they had been brought close to God, but, but only so close. Their sinful hearts still hadn't been dealt with. They still couldn't just walk into God's presence. And the only way they could stay even as close to God as they were, the only way they could get even that close was to have animals die again and again and again because they didn't last. They could only do so much. Atonement had to keep getting made over and over and over again. So, so far this morning, we've talked about 
Israel's obligations in the covenant, Israel's side of the covenant, obeying God, keeping his instruction, a big part of which was all of this worship at the tabernacle. So now we need to go to the second half. What was God's end of the covenant? What, was, what, were, what were God's covenant promises? Because we've seen, again, if you tracked with the story, that in each of the covenants that God makes, he makes promises. He made very specific promises to Noah, for example, and to Abraham. So what are God's covenant promises to Israel in this covenant? And the clearest place we see that is Deuteronomy 28, which is why it's there in your bulletin, some of those sections. Now, as you've probably noticed, as we read through those, those passages, as Tim read them for us earlier, there's a big difference between, for example, God's covenant promises to Israel and his covenant promises to Noah. Because with Noah, God's promises were all one-sided. He just said, I'm going to do this. And that was it. They were unconditional. But is that what we see when we see God's covenant promises to Israel? No, what we see here is that what God promises to do completely depends on what they are going to do. These are conditional, conditional promises. So we see, verse 1, if they faithfully obey the voice of the Lord, then God promises them blessing. If, if. Now this morning, I was tempted to read all of Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's a long chapter. I would really encourage you to go, when you go home this afternoon, to read through this whole chapter. It is a, a powerful and a very important chapter of the Bible that really helps us understand so much of what comes afterwards. But what we see is that there's these incredible blessings that God promises all the way up to verse 14. If they obey God, God promises to bless like every area of their life. And that's a big deal in the storyline of the Bible, isn't it? Because what did, what did God do when Adam and Eve sinned? He cursed them. He cursed Eve's experience of childbirth. He cursed the ground that Adam would work out, would, would, would work. And now God's saying that if you obey me, I'm going to bless the fruit of your womb. I'm going to bless the fruit of the ground. I'm going to bless you everywhere. God promised them just amazing blessing. He was going to, there would be no area of their life that wouldn't be blessed. And it sounds like a return to Eden. Do you get that connection? It sounds like what he's saying is, if you obey me, your, your life is going to be as close as you can imagine, close as possible to life in the Garden of Eden. God's presence among you and just blessing everywhere if they obeyed him. But what if they didn't? What if they don't obey God? What if they break his covenant? What God says is that it's not just that they'll miss out on his blessings. Instead, God promised that if they broke his covenant, he would curse them. 
Verse 15, but if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Just imagine these words being spoken to you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. And it goes on and on from there. And it goes on for the entire rest of the chapter, almost 50 verses The rest of this chapter is literally the stuff of nightmares. I encourage you to read it. The the curses that God promised them if they would not obey him are, are horrific. Some of them I couldn't read here this morning. So it's pretty black and white, isn't it? Like two extremes. If you obey God and keep his covenant, you'll be blessed beyond your wildest dreams. And if you disobey God and don't keep his covenant, you will be cursed beyond your wildest nightmares. If you obey God, life will be amazing in every possible way. If you disobey God, life will be horrific in every possible way. So I ask you, could God have given them any stronger motivation to obey him and keep his covenant? Could he have upped the ante anywhere? Could he have, could he have sweetened the deal anymore? I don't, it's, it's impossible. No, he could not have. There is no way God could have given them any stronger motivation to obey him and keep his covenant. So let me ask you, as we start to transition into wrapping up this morning, if you were a member of the Mosaic covenant, if you were part of Israel in that day, and you had these options laid out before you, how would you do? How consistently do you think you would obey God, keep his covenant? Careful how you answer, right? Because we've hinted this morning, and we're going to see it so clearly in a couple of weeks from now when we talk about the exile, is that all of the motivation in the world, all of the promises in the world, all of the curses in the world, they can't change this. For all of its glory, the covenant with Israel was good and glorious, but for all of its glory, it could not change the sinful human heart. And in fact, it really just serves, it really serves to highlight the problem with the sinful human heart because just think about this, all of these displays of God's power. I mean, walking through the middle of a, of a sea, you know, seeing him come down in Sinai, hearing his voice, eating bread that he, like all of the things and all of these mind-blowing promises of blessing. And as we keep reading the story, we find Israel completely, continually disobeying God's instruction. They keep turning away. They keep turning away from Yahweh to serve the gods of the nations around them. They keep breaking his covenant over and over and over again. And so what would happen is that they would suffer the covenant curses, just like God promised. So you read that in the book of Judges, for example. That's why Deuteronomy 28 is so important, because you read Judges, and you see Deuteronomy 28 being acted out. As they would disobey God, and what would happen to them? The covenant curses. They'd have famine. They'd be oppressed by other nations. All these things would happen, just like God promised. And so they'd cry out to God for deliverance, and, and just like God promised in Deuteronomy 30, or... Solomon repeated those words, what if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and repent from their wicked ways, I will hear them, I will heal their land. That's not a promise for Canada. That was a promise for Israel. And God would do that. He would come and he would heal their land and he would 
he would bring blessing to them again as they repented. And so they would follow God for a little bit. And before long, they'd be turning aside to the gods of the nations and this cycle of curse would just repeat itself. So the covenant with Israel, for all of its goodness, for all of its glory, it shows us that we need more than just promises. We need more than just threats. We need more than just sacrifices that get us through another day. We need a real savior. That's what this covenant shows us. We need someone to come and deal with sin once and for all. We need someone not just to motivate us from the outside, but we need someone to change us from the inside. And so like we've seen with all the other covenants so far, the real purpose of a covenant with Israel is to set the stage for Jesus. And one of the main ways it does this is by showing us what kind of a savior we really need. We need a savior who's going to deal with sin once and for all and who's going to make us be born again and change us on the inside. And once again, I kind of need to leave you hanging there because we have two more stops in this series before we finally get to Jesus and get to go back and, and talk about these stories, but, but seeing how Jesus fulfilled each of these points so clearly, and I'm just so looking forward to that. We're going to get there in November. But just like we have kind of done the past few weeks, we're going to give us a sneak peek as we end this morning. We're going to end by singing a song this morning. Before the throne of God above, I have a strong, a perfect plea. A great high priest. Because I hope you know, if you know Christ this morning, he is your high priest. We have a savior. Jesus is not just the high priest, he's the sacrifice. And he doesn't need to be offered again and again and again. He died once and for all. And our sins from that point on are all paid for. Jesus is the one who sent us Holy Spirit. And if you know God, he's caused you to be born again. You're not the same person. He's written his law on your heart. You want to obey him and you don't need to keep getting clobbered with threats and stuff because his law is in you. He is the one through whom we have access to the Father. I'm gonna invite the team back up. So we're gonna sing this last song together. And I just, I wanna leave you in this spot because this week, as we're gonna sing in this song, Satan is going to tempt you And one of the things Satan might tempt you with this week is to tempt you with despair by reminding you of your sin and your guilt. And I want us to end here by praising God that that we don't have to take a trip to the temple. We don't have to go take an animal out of our flock and, and go watch a priest cut its throat and bleed it out and watch it die for us. And to do that again and again and again and again. Praise God that this week when Satan comes at you, you can simply look up to the one who has made an end to all of your sin once and for all. All God's promises have been fulfilled. There's nothing more that you can add to what Jesus did for you. You can't take it away. You can't make it more. Your sin is a done deal if you know Christ. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the covenant that you made with Israel, how you kept your word to Abraham and Lord, we thank you for all that we learn, all that we see, all that's true and good and beautiful in in your instruction to your people. And I thank you for how it shows us about Jesus. Thank you for how it shows us how much we need him. 
So Jesus, I pray today that, that you cause us to be thankful and to worship you as our sacrifice who has died and shed his blood for us once and for all. And that you're not like the other high priests who would die and need to pay for their own sins. But today, Jesus, today you're interceding for us, your people. And I thank you for the way that your Holy Spirit has taken your word and brought it into our hearts and caused us to be alive. So as we go out from here today, Jesus, keep us looking upwards to you. Please keep us remembering you and trusting you and resting in your finished work. And that that would inform and empower all of our living and our obeying for you. And God, if, if there's anyone here who has not yet looked to Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, Lord, please draw them to yourself even now. Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness and your salvation, full and free and final. Help us to live in that freedom today for your glory. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.